You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Laura Wildman is practice area lead at Biohabitats. She's a fisheries and water resource engineer with expertise in river restoration, dam removal, fish passage, and habitat, risk management for dams, and sustainable flood control. Today I talk with Laura about the scope of the dam problem in the United States. A little surprised that we actually don't know how many dams there are in the U.S. But there are a lot. And for engineers like Laura, they represent a vast project to remove dams in order to restore aquatic connectivity throughout the United States. My name is Laura Wildman and I'm a water resource engineer, but I specialize in fisheries engineering and ecological restoration engineer. And I'm a specialist really in the removal of dams. Also, uh, things like fish ladders when we can't take out a dam, but, um, but primarily the restoration of rivers through the removal of dams. And I have been with Biohabitats since last December, did one of those uh, COVID job moves, which is always yeah. a little strange, <laughs> uh, but I have been down to the, the main office since then. I've opened their uh, Northeast Highlands and Coastal Bioregion up here in Glastonbury, Connecticut. And that's going to be pretty much all of New England, and it's inclusive of New York as well, uh, along with uh, we have a Hudson Valley bioregion as well. And I'm a practice lead. I'm a practice lead uh, focusing, again, on river restoration issues and primarily aquatic connectivity issues. So fish passage and uh, restoration of migratory fish. Can you give us a sense of the scope of, of our dam problem? Like how, how, and do you have to categorize it for the size and types of dams? Is that easier? Or do you just say there's 400,000 dams all over the place? And yeah, here's the funny thing about that. There are so many, we don't have a good count anywhere uh, in, in the US or in Europe. They're trying to get a count on them right now in Europe. Uh, we don't have a good count. And isn't that so surprising? So we have um, individual states have dam offices of dam safety, and they know the dams that they define as dams. So every single state defines a dam different, like different height, different impoundment size. So each one of them is keeping track of only the dams that they consider, you know, dams that have to be regulated. So a certain size or a certain size impoundment. And then the federal government, the National Inventory of Dams, has a really big inventory, the biggest of the inventories, and it includes dams, again, only over a certain size. And they even have kind of a higher ladder. Often their dams are like 25 feet or higher or even bigger impoundments. So a lot of people, when they're talking about how many you know, barriers, how many dams do we have in the U.S., they refer to 90,000 something because that's how many are in the National Inventory. But interestingly enough, that is just a fraction of them. So it's just a fraction. That doesn't include a lot of the dams that are even in the state inventories, especially the states that have like a lower um, height that might say anything over six feet is a dam. Um, And then the state inventories don't include tons and tons of offline dams or dams under six feet 
or dams they're just not that concerned with, or they don't have another enough staff to even go out and figure out how many dams there are. So they're just incomplete inventories. Um, so we're left with, with not really knowing how many, and those are, those are just dams. And when we talk about aquatic connectivity, we talk about culvert crossings and bridge crossings that can have aquatic connectivity problems. We talk about uh, levees and old railroad embankments along the sides of rivers that can have a, um, a lateral uh, connectivity issue too. So no, it, it's amazing that we really don't have a solid feel for the scale of the issue. Well, of course, our flagship uh, dam that uh, you know receives the bulk of scorn uh, in the United States uh, among conservationists is 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 got to be uh, Lake Fowl and Glen Canyon. Uh, you know, just because it's such a storied thing, it's you know the beginning of the you John know. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. such a big deal. And well, they I think say it's, people... a, it's the dam that killed him. I think they say it was the dam that killed him, broke his heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, definitely. And, and there are a lot. I mean, we do, we've done a couple of podcasts on um, the dams in the Northwest and the salmon stuff. Um, it's so easy to paint a picture of salmon and that, uh, that connectivity issue. Um, and people have done it really well and consistently and a lot for the last you know 40 years um severely in the last 20 years so i think that's what a lot of people think about when they think about dams but i've been through um some of your material and some of the material on biohabitats.com and i recall pictures of pretty daggone smallish dams like blockages not even like a it doesn't look anything like a glen canyon dam it doesn't look you know it's not that scale but those are extreme. That's probably the most of them, right? And they're extremely important in the work that you do, whether or not they are there and when you can go and fix those problems. Now, that's very, very true. And I often start my talks by asking people to picture a dam in their head and then showing two pictures, one of like Hoover, or, you know, um, Glen Canyon type scale dams versus you know the little four foot, six foot old mill dam or industrial dam uh, just around the corner in, in the town you live in. And a lot of people automatically think these really big ones. So they also think when they think what I do for a living, they think, oh, you're trying to take out all dams. You're trying to take out Hoover Dam. And that's, of course, not the case at all. You know, the majority of what we're removing from rivers are old industrial and old mill dams that haven't been used in over 100 years. And, and we're left when the industries stopped using them or, or moved to themselves. Uh, just left in the streams, you know, left in the streams, not serving any kind of economic purpose, but still having an enormous amount of ecological impact um, on system connectivity. What are the effects that those things have? And what's a before and after view of like a project that you've been on before in terms of the return of species, the connectivity and what that meant for biodiversity in the area? Well, like I said, I work on a lot of small ones, but I've worked on kind of a range. So I was lucky enough to work on a lot of kind of the larger scale campaigns up in May, uh, Maine on the uh, Penobscot, the, the Kennebec, the Presumpscot. Um, and because on those, we've seen just tremendous amount of fish coming back into those systems. So when Edwards Dam was removed in 1999, huge amounts of fish that came back. I don't even have the number right in front of me, but it was, you know, multi-fold, 10-fold, 20-fold, I think maybe, maybe even 
last I checked, something like 70 fold on, on, the dam, on the fish returning to that system. But then same with on the Penobscot system, two dams removed. Um, I was involved in the great works in the VZ dam removals uh, and the Howland bypass channel. And again, we're opening up the whole system, you know, not the whole system, the ones way up in the, the headwaters still haven't been taken out, but we are really opening up a system there and we're seeing tremendous amount of fish coming back into the system. Uh, Presumpscot as well as kind of at, at the infancy, but already with a, a fishway on the first dam, a removal and fishway combination on the second, we're seeing fish stacking up at the base of the third dam now. I've also been involved in ones where we took out, like I said, old industrial dams, where we took out the five in a row and, and we opened up a whole river system um, like we have been working on on the Naugatuck River in Connecticut. I work in a field where the response is so immediate. The, the positive response and the fish coming back to the system is so immediate that you get a lot of instant gratification. And then there are longer term things that take um, you know, for muscle populations and aquatic invertebrates, it might take a little bit longer for full restoration, but we're really seeing some amazing um, restoration results. I'd point people to, towards the Elwa system too, where they took out the two large dams. Again, just amazing increases in fish populations, bird populations. Um, uh, they're really doing a, a, a real diversity of studies out there on the research post. Were the dams that you were just uh, referencing close to the end of their life? Was it, was it, or was it a really hard, were they still working dams that people wanted to profit from or somewhere in between? It's somewhere in between. Um, I'd say the majority of dams that I am involved in the removal are definitely past their economic lifespan and maybe haven't been used, like I said, for 50 to 100 years and no one's maintaining them or anything else. So that's by far the majority. But that being said, the kind of the other end of that was the Edwards Dam. Um, and that was an active hydroelectric that FERC made a ruling that it didn't make enough electricity to justify the ecological impacts it was having. So mm -hmm. it was required to be removed. Um, and that was the only one I can think of that was kind of removed kind of uh, maybe where the dam owner wouldn't have made that choice just on their own. But the rest of the projects, even if they have some kind of value, um, normally what we're seeing is they are they are a burden, uh, either a liability burden or safety burden or economic burden to the owner. So when partnered with a group of people and when getting grants and everything else to move forward, um, normally everyone's on board with the uh, with the concept of removal, at least the decision makers. Sometimes it takes a little longer for various community members to realize the benefits of the removal. But we often see people kind of come about face, be very, very anti it, and then see a restored river afterwards and, and, and migratory fish running and saying, wow, this, this looks great. What size would the army be if we filled it with experts like you who had the job of going and getting rid of just moderately to not controversial dams at all that would do, do, with the with the mission of restoring aquatic connectivity oh like, you can keep thousands and thousands of us busy you can <laughs> keep thousands and thousands there's so many derelict dams out there and we do have some great experts at the army corps of engineer uh, working on dam removal as well. And now if this 21st century dams act passes, 
uh, we'll have even more federal focus on, on removal of dams that no longer make sense, as well as repair of the ones that do make sense. Tell me so, more about the 21st Century Dam Act. Yes, well, well, this is, you know, it's in the process right now. It hasn't gone through yet, but if it does go through, I think it's around $7 billion they're talking about uh, putting into dams in our country, both repair of dams that are st still serving valuable purposes, um, and removal of ones that are not. And it's talking about creating on a pretty high level uh, a dam removal board um, with all of the different federal agencies involved and then advised by another board that's gonna bring in nonprofits, um, both that represent river systems themselves and restoration, but also ones that represent um, dam owners and uh, dam safety. And they're gonna come, hopefully if it goes through, they're gonna bring that all together and. Um, and put some focus on this, this subject because we're pretty behind the times when it comes to keeping up with uh, maintenance and or removal of dams where we've really got a huge workload ahead of us. It sounds par for the course though for general infrastructure. <laughs> it is, it is. If you look at um, American Society of Civil Engineers uh, report cards on a lot of different infrastructure, we're getting very bad grades, but um, Dams have consecutively every year been getting a D on the report card every yeah. time it comes out. Is this in one of those stasis things? We're waiting for somebody to pick it back up and run with it or? It's pretty active right now. It's pretty active right now. And I don't know where it is exactly on this very day. I know it has not passed now, but I think, um, you know, looking for some kind of, um, as you know, federal funding they're looking for to create jobs and help with these kind of things. So we're seeing, some programs being suggested for that reason, but it's also on the wake of a few large dam failures, for example, like the uh, the two up in Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, so anytime we have something like that happen, kind of these larger scale failures, we start seeing people get more interested in doing something about this. I know a lot of dam safety divisions um, have a lot of derelict dams themselves that they just inherited. and And I know that they would like to get those off the books so they can focus on the ones that do need to be maintained. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. I was really surprised when I was working with Sky Island Alliance back in the 90s and we were doing some work um, around the Gila wilderness, Alda Leopold. Um, and I was told that the Forest Service might be amenable to us going and, and helping them rip out illegally created roads. And I'm like, we don't work with the Forest Service. They don't like us very much. I mean, all we do is complain and sue them. Why in the world? And lo and behold, I found out they were very, very happy as one of the largest managers of a road system in the United States. They wanted help. And we were able to do a whole bunch of projects and experiment with different road ripping technology to return the roads as much as possible back to uh, and, it, and I remember that being extremely rewarding, but man, if you throw water into that factor, I mean, if you throw water and just seeing something flowing that wasn't before, you know, you've got that all kinds of metaphors that come out of that, but it must be intensely gratifying 
to uh, to just kind of sit back and put your hands on your hips and take a look around at what you did. It really is. It really is. And I've heard of your guys' efforts on that. I think that's wonderful. And of course, many of those road crossings likely crossed um, rivers too, the roads going through. So mm -hmm. I'm sure you uh, helped with aquatic connectivity at the same time. Uh, I know a lot of the federal um, agencies that own dams uh, would be excited by getting even more partners involved to help removal, uh, remove them. Um, so, and we've seen a lot of the national parks focus on uh, trying to take barriers out. So I, I, we are seeing that path and it's great when we get people all together to do it. You talk about kind of the excitement you feel when you, when you do this kind of stuff. It, it is one of the most rewarding things you can do. You know, I, I, it's like a ball and chain around the ankle of the river, if the rivers had ankles. And to take that off and allow a river to be mobile and dynamic and have natural processes and, and to be involved in projects where we bring people out to the site and people are like, well, where, where was your project? I don't, I don't see anything. I just see that river over there. And you know, to, to have done that, to have not just not left our footprints behind, but to have to have um, as much as possible, I mean, rewilded, like you said, um, uh, brought the river back to um, a self-sustaining, healthy state. I mean, it is absolutely one of the most rewarding things you can do. I look forward to your next book, If Rivers Had Ankles. <laughs> I know you're very busy and it's hard. It's tough to write a book when you're doing all the stuff that you're doing, but I really, I can't wait until that comes out. I'll be the first in line. That's awesome. Taking the shackles off. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it really does. Uh, it is exciting. This bill is very exciting that, that there's any momentum, you know, there. Uh, I just don't think that people have a real good sense of the scope of the problem. You know, you walk a river. Okay, so a lot of people, when they go out to like either boat or walk a river, they go to, you know, this gorgeous spot where, you know, it's known there's 30 miles where you can boat and it's perfectly fine. You're not going to run into a, a dam on that. But if you just randomly picked a river in your town or nearby and you walked that river or you took a small craft and boated down that river, then you would start to see, you would start to see the dams that are still there that aren't serving any kind of purpose. You'd see the remnant ones that blew out, but not quite, not all the way. I mean, there's a little um, um, river right near me, absolutely gorgeous river, Roaring Brook. And it was completely stair-stepped with dams. I forget the number, it was something like 50 dams on this one small river system. And when you look at the historic photos, it was dam flat, dam flat, dam flat, the whole way up. And now when you go out to that system, not only have we taken some dams out of it and some blew out on their own, but now it's just this gorgeous steep bedrock system with all these little like pools and drops and, and fish going up. I mean, it, it is spectacular. But if you tell people to just go out on these rivers, that's when they start seeing this. They see all this anthropogenic kind of waste that we've just left in our systems, especially if they go to a more urban or suburban one as well. But um, you really run into just all the impacts. And again, not just the dams, then throttling a river through a small culvert as well um, that was never designed to really pass the whole, the whole river and everything in the river was just made to quickly get some flow through so they could get a, 
a car or a railroad over the top. We have massively impacted the majority of every single river in the United States. And um, when you mentioned the five in a row, are those were those like what people call spillways or were they bigger than that? Yeah, you know, okay, the terms, the terms on these can be difficult. I remember one guy, he, he contacted me from out west. He felt the need to call me for this. This was like 20 years ago. He's like, I just saw a picture of the dams you're taking out. I don't care if you take those out. Those aren't dams. Those are weirs. Those aren't dams. And he was thinking, again, he was thinking Hoover Dam out, out west. Yeah. Like I was taking out. So those terms are really interesting. Um, I tend to use the word dam for a lot of things, and a lot of people do. That being said, sometimes people refer to the smaller ones that kind of go bank to bank with a spillway as a weir instead, or, or just a spillway. But really, a spillway is a part of a dam. So it's, it's very hard to have any kind of line in between these terms. But yes, the majority of quote unquote dams that I take out are under 25 feet in height. Many of them go from bank to bank with one single spillway, although there are plenty that have a interior spillway and then a higher crest going around and a wider impoundment. So, but they're not on the scale of these really, really large ones. I've been involved in a handful of very large ones, um, but those are far and few between when we're talking about removal compared to these small ones. I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to follow my sword for everyone else who may be too embarrassed to ask such a newbie question, but what is a spillway style dam for? What is, what is the purpose behind those? I think a lot of people are seeing in their heads right now exactly what you're talking about. And maybe some of them have wondered too, what are they, there's like no mechanics to it and there's no electricity coming from it. What do they use them for? Well, that's, there's a big answer to that. I'll try to make a short answer instead. There are a whole lot of different things they use them for. Most of the ones, um, the older ones, let's say up here in uh, New England, uh, were a single dam that diverted into uh, what we would then call a head race or a tail race or a canal and brought flow to multiple industries in that area. So you would have that one dam that was like kind of spillway bank to bank and it would go into a tail race coming out of the dam, but that would be really a head race for the different industries it's getting into. And it would bring water to those for processing water, mechanical power, um, all sorts of things. And because we use dams uh, water as uh, sewer systems. If I'm in the Midwest, it's likely gonna be for water diversion, um, water diversion for irrigation or something to that effect. Um, sometimes on a very small dam, you do have hydro on it as well. That's not as common though. That's pretty, that's much less common. That's a, a very small percentage compared to the ones that are more like diverting things for industrial water, mechanical, you know, mill water, uh, canal irrigation, these kind of things. So you might not be able to see it sometimes. You look at this spillway, but it might either have a low level pipe or what looks like a little channel coming off up in the impoundment that diverts flow somewhere else. Often they even had a mill right at the site, but still diverted water to all these other sites as well. So they were used for a lot of different things, but in the early times when fish runs were still a critical, critical part of uh, what people would eat um, and to, to keep their families going, a lot of these dams were uh, only seasonally used. 
and they would open the dam up pretty fully uh, during the migratory runs and then close it when they were going to, when the runs were over and then they were going to use it for their mechanical, you know, like for grinding grain or for um, uh, doing timber cutting. Okay. Lots of uses. I always yeah, look yeah. at them my whole life. I've looked at them and gone, I don't know what that is, but it doesn't seem very useful. Certainly not to me, but I still didn't understand what industries or, or what interests. So that's very, very clarifying. Yeah. And I think we need to know about a lot, a lot more about dams. And in the way that I wanted you to come and talk about today, as you are, because the more we know, um, the more people can take this information and use it in their area, because it's guaranteed that every single person listening to this right now has one or several of these in their vicinity, <laughs> right? Yes, of course. I was also going to say the old canal systems, the old, the canal systems were all fed by um, dams as well. And those canal systems were like our highways. They were our roads back mm -hmm. then. When farmers have straightened streams and creeks and rivers, even from that real squiggly, snaky looking thing that we all know to be the healthy way, the, the way nature likes to run water around um, and straighten things to control flooding and, and all of that. Can you explain what your work has to do with that and, and kind of give us an idea of how we can talk to people about making those things crooked again. Like, how do you even do that? Is that where you turn it over to nature or is, <laughs> is there some kind of handshake where you walk away and go, all right, nature, it's all up to you from this point. <laughs> well, I'm definitely a less is more when it comes to restoration of rivers. So I like to give the river is as many tools or building blocks it needs to do the work itself. But that being said, we have sometimes channelized rivers to an extreme where it, they need more than just uh, building blocks to get back in. A healthy natural river is very complex. It might have multi-threads to it. It has uh, wood in it. It has, depending on where you are, various sized stone. It has beavers. It has, you know, everything else. Trees fall in on their own and they're left there and they provide habitat to um, and you're right, it's not dead straight unless it just happens to be a very straight um, valley. But in general, they they're have winding paths or multi-threaded paths. And we like to try to get back to that when we can. That being said, we've got a lot of industry, a lot of development that has happened and we're somewhat limited by that. So again, we wanna put the river on a course to restore itself. We don't wanna overdo it. But if, if something has been like, let's say uh, a farm field and it's been completely channelized at like straight lines and right angles just to go around this one farm field, you can, you can just, you know, let it do its own thing. And it's gonna take a very long time to kind of get back um, to where it was, or you can kind of help it you know, maybe start lowering floodplain if you need it or raising it up a little so that it can get into its floodplain and then helping it find different paths. I left engineering school only like 30 years ago. And at that point, we were still discussing river systems like flumes. And they were talking about hydraulically efficient, designing hydraulically efficient rivers, which meant trapezoidal dead straight rivers that were uh, concrete lined or riprap lined. And we've come so far from that concept now um, that obviously we were doing enormous amount of the damage. Engineers uh, were doing an enormous amount of the damage by the way we were taught and trained 
um, not anything about ecological systems. And now we're integrating that. We see a lot of young engineers coming out with a mixed training and an ecological understanding. What if you got what you dream about at night? What we should do based on what we've gotten wrong in our thinking about flood control and how we use water for energy and and all these other things, given the fact that we've got a biodiversity crisis, a climate crisis and everything else, like what do you, what's somebody like you dream about this work yeah. that you're doing leading to? Yeah, I, I do. I have a few of my favorite dreams. One that I like the best is if we would start making decisions based on what natural systems offer us instead of always trying to take more than what they offer. You know, rivers are amazing. They offer us clean water. They offer us all sorts of different species that we can eat, you know. They, they offer us um, power. Um, they offer us fertile uh, floodplains. Um, they offer us so much, but we went in so greedy and always took more than they gave. So if we had ever just stopped back and said, hey, this area, like this region here, this can support around 10,000 people, let's say this, this large region. It can support, let's say, 10,000 people, but it can't really support 50,000 or a million in this one region. And even with my grandfather who built dams, you know, who built most of the water supply dams that um, serve Phoenix, Arizona right now, I think we came into a desert and then we wanted to make it golf, you know, uh, a golf course. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we wanted to have green yards in the middle of the desert. If we had just listened to the river and found out how much it could naturally offer us and still be in balance and still be healthy. And that's what I'd like us to go back to. I just want us to get back to the balance of what was being offered to us, as opposed to the greed in which we took it. I get the idea that throughout history, this very short history, this industrial history, that no agency has really ever much said no. Do you think that somewhere down the road, an agency would say, would first be keyed in with developers and industry enough to be able to see what they're planning and and be able to come in and just say no you can't do that this only supports 10,000 people we incrementally said yes to every single thing you know even if we said oh well do it a little bit better than that or you know you can't you know you do have to have a low flow release but we have incrementally uh said yes to so many things and we are so well past listening to what is being offered to us, what the earth is offering us. And if we could really put our ear to the ground and understand what's offered and use it in that kind of sustainable way and make those decisions, make those the agencies make the decisions based on that. But it's not the case. We haven't, we haven't made those kind of limitations. And, you know, we, um, we've, we've let a lot of uh, industries and a lot of development decisions go too far and we're out of balance. We're significantly out of balance. Uh, no group would probably know that better than uh, your own. If you were talking to a farmer in Indiana or Iowa who uh, had some riverside uh, farmland and was actively working to uh, over the years and, and seen lots of floods and gotten washed out but got bailed out by the government so it really didn't matter, their floodplains 
and and they were telling you 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 would like them to not farm in those areas is there any upside to them not doing so like how would you tell that farmer it would actually be good for you and more profitable if you if you did not farm all of your floodplain well you know i think i think there are a lot of farmers that do know that i mean they they are tied to the earth they see these systems and i think the big industry farmers might not see that as much but I think other farmers who know the land well know that, for example, floodplains are fertile areas, but that ground can only stay fertile so long if then disconnected with what made it fertile in the first place. Mm. You know, so I think a lot of them understand those processes and are looking for sustainable solutions. Uh, I don't work a lot with the agricultural side of things, but my guess is when you're talking to an individual who knows a lot about the land that they have maybe farmed for generations, I think they are much more open-minded to ways to make it available for future generations too. And they remember things like the Dust Bowl and when we went you know, clearly too far with things like that. Mm -hmm. But I think when we start thinking about our um, agriculture on an industrial basis, I think then they don't care. The, the bottom line basically says, use as much of it as you possibly can to make the biggest profit right now, and then move on, go somewhere else or do whatever. And I don't think we're looking at a multi-generational view sometimes in industry, and that saddens me. And I think it's gotten us to where we are. And I think anyone with a lick of sense who is not a complete narcissist cares about other generations and not just about their own pocketbook during this life. And if, if that really is all they care about, that's a, that's a sad, empty life they have. I really agree. I mean, I really believe in what farmers do and I'm very proud of what they do for our country. Um, I, and I think the ones, again, that really have been on the land a long time, they know it and they do want to make a difference. So you're a professional, you're an engineer, you're uh -huh. in the nitty gritty of all of this stuff. And you're not not you're not professionally an activist. And a lot of people see people in the conservation, when you put movement at the end, they think, oh, everybody you're talking about is an activist or whatever, but you are big into conservation, like as big as people can be, and you're a professional. And I want to give people tools. If they think what you do, what you talked about today is really, really cool, how could they find out more about being more like you? And I would say at the beginning of that uh, conversation just then, uh, I don't think the two are separate. To be a professional and, and know something about these systems uh, is also to be an advocate for, for these systems and future generations. I mean, we have to be the voice for what we know. River can't speak for itself, so we have to be its voice. And as far as then how to become uh, what I've gone into, you know, I work as a consultant right now, but I did work as chief engineer for American Rivers for quite some time too. Um, again, because I do believe that this is all integrated into what I should be doing as an engineer. I have multi-trained myself. I've got a mixed background, and I think a lot of people who are in my field do. So I have an undergrad in civil engineering and actually focused more on structural back then, but very quickly went into water resource, did a lot of um, ecological design and water resource type classes and sediment transport classes, and then got my master's in environmental science and environmental management. So I've also taken a lot of ecology and fisheries classes, contaminant transport classes. So you have to kind of bring that all in. And I know that our firm, for one, uh, wants to hire passionate people. So you're looking for someone with a passion 
but you also want to have these skill sets. When you're doing what I do, it is nice if you get the undergrad in engineering, but, but keep it diverse when you're getting it. Uh, and then bring in more sciences, either get a minor or go on for a master's in more of the sciences as well, something like fluvial geomorphology or ecology or environmental management. You want to bring in all these sides and we're never doing this alone. So an engineer like myself is always working with folks who are straight out scientists, biologists, aquatic ecologists, folks who really know a lot about um, contaminant transport and just the intricacies of the ecological system. We create a team that works together and brainstorms on these things together to come up with the best solution. And uh, a team of just engineers alone would, would never be the right choice. And a team of just scientists alone sometimes is not the right choice or, or you need that professional engineer to do the plans and the construction side of it. Teaming together, getting that whole group together and keeping your own education diverse. And then when you're out looking for a career in this ne networking with people, find the people who are doing what you love and call them and have lunch with them. And don't you don't even have to say, hey, I want a job. What you say is, hey, I'm interested in what you do. Let me sit and learn more about it. And when you leave that meeting, if, if they didn't have a job for you, then you're talking to the people that they sent you to as well. So you're leaving any of these meetings with new names and a bigger network to draw from. When you find that core group of people doing what you love, uh, it's not even gonna feel like work to you. It's gonna be awesome. Networking tip, almost anybody in your line of work can be bribed with tacos. I've <laughs> so just for I the people. The right people, the people who would be good mentors anyway, are fine with spending 15 minutes with you on a phone call to talk about what they do for a living. Um, might even have lunch with you. I, I do lunches, you know, almost once a month with people who have some kind of interest in this field. And I like that. It doesn't mean I'm ready to hire them right now, but maybe they're going to go on and become the regulator that I have to talk to in the future. Or maybe they're going to go into a nonprofit and be a, a client of mine. Building our network just makes our voice louder, makes us stronger. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time today to be on Rewilding Earth Podcast. This has been really fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.